Hello and welcome to another episode of Virtual Legality. I'm your host, Richard Hogue, managing member of the Hogue Law Business Law Firm of Northville, Michigan, and I seem to have pulled up the wrong image for this video. I am so sorry. I don't know how this happened, but I guess it looks like the Michigan Wolverine College football team uh, beat the Ohio State College football team 42-27. to Huh. Well, I mean, I guess that's worthy of a news item, even if not worthy of a complete virtual legality video. Yes, after 10 long years, we did it. I'm sorry, Buckeyes, that I'm not more sorry for doing that introduction. But chances are you didn't pop into this video to hear me talk about my wonderful Michigan Wolverines, but instead to comment on the very unexpected resignation of Jack Dorsey, the CEO of Twitter, this morning, done through a series of emails, basically on Twitter. If you go to the site now, it's already replaced with the new CEO and new information about the board. But earlier this morning, he basically said, after almost 18 years of having a role at the company, from co-founder to CEO to chair to exec chair to interim CEO to CEO, I decided it's finally time for me to leave. Why? There's a lot of talk about the importance of a company being founder-led. In fact, a lot of investors like that aspect. Ultimately, I believe that's severely limiting and a single point of failure. I've worked hard to ensure this company can break away from its founding and founders. There are three reasons I believe now is the right time. No, I'm not going to read through this whole letter, but the first is what we're going to talk about here. The first is Pareg becoming our CEO, and I apologize for the pronunciation of the CEO's new name. I am sure I'm getting it slightly too incredibly wrong. The board ran a rigorous process considering all options and unanimously appointed Pereg. He's been my choice for some time, given how deeply he understands the company and its needs. Pereg has been behind every critical decision that helped turn this company around. He is curious, probing, rational, creative, demanding, self-aware, and humble. He leads with heart and soul and is someone I learned from daily. My trust in him as our CEO is bone deep. And to give a little bit of context here, this is Jack actually sending an email to the people that work at Twitter, and then, of course, publicizing it on Twitter because, hey, it's Jack Dorsey. And Pereg Agrawal, who is the new CEO of Twitter, also tweeted out his email to his employees, but first added a message, deep gratitude for Jack and our entire team, and so much excitement for the future. Here's the note I sent to the company. Thank you all for your trust and support. Thank you, Jack. I'm honored and humbled, and I'm grateful for your continued mentorship and your friendship. I'm grateful for the service that you built, the culture, soul, and purpose you fostered among us, and for leading the company through really significant challenges. I'm grateful for the trust you've put in me and for your continued partnership. Team, most of all, I am grateful for all of you, etc., etc. Our purpose has never been more important. Our people and our culture are unlike anything in the world. There is no limit to what we can do together, and what he wants to do is something that's going to be the main subject of this video. Skipping to the end, the world is watching us right now even more than they have before. Lots of people are going to have lots of different views and opinions about today's news, including me. It is because they care about Twitter and our future, and it's a signal that the work we do here matters. Let's show the world Twitter's full potential, which depending on how you feel about Twitter, can either be a nice uplifting moment to believe in the power of social media or sound a little bit like Lex Luthor threatening the peaceful state of the earth. Really depends on how you feel about Twitter. And I also think it's going a step too far to suggest that people that care enough about Twitter to follow the news or have popped into this video in virtual legality care about Twitter and the future and that it matters, just that it is notable as part of the fabric of modern life and communication, which 
Of course, if you read these emails, you see this news, you think immediately, immediately in your head leads to a conversation about the Communications Decency Act, Section 230, and social media liability shields, right? That's what you were thinking when you saw this news. Just me? Well, I was thinking about it because Section 230 is one of those internet flashpoints. This is where I get maybe the most comments on my tweets. Yes, I use Twitter quite often. On my social media, in my direct messages, wherever, where people talk in general about suing Twitter or Facebook or YouTube or Twitch or any other provider of an internet-based platform that you can imagine because they're doing something that they don't like and can't we get around 230? Or more specifically, doesn't action X or omission Y make them, and this is the phrasing that they like to use, a publisher and not a platform? Now, in general, you're not going to see the words publisher or platform in section 230. Of course, as I say that, you see it right in the middle of your screen. This is a heading and not a defined term in the legal document, the statute itself. So it doesn't actually matter. But what does matter are the definitions used. Now, 230, if you're familiar with this, I'm sorry, we're going to go over a little bit of the highlights of this statute so that we can talk about why it might be impacted by this change at Twitter. 230 is divided into two sections. The first is that you aren't responsible if you run an internet platform for what another person puts on your platform. Or in law speak, no provider or user of an interactive computer service shall be treated as the publisher or speaker of any information provided by another information content provider. And you do, in fact, see the word publisher or speaker here but it's not dividing between publisher and platform. It's dividing between interactive computer service and information content provider. Those are the definitions we need to understand. So an interactive computer service who gets the benefit of this particular provision of the act is Twitter. Or again, in legal speak, an interactive computer service means any information service system or access software provider that provides or enables computer access by multiple users to a computer server. So that's basically everywhere you go on the web. If that is provided to you, if you're seeing other people generate content and putting it up there in forums or posts or tweets or whatever else might be a name for these kinds of things now and in the future on the internet, they are an interactive computer service. And this provision of 230 says, if you are a provider of that service or a user, if you're a user, you won't be treated as having said something that another person has said, another information content provider. But that definition matters a whole lot and it's where people get tripped up. So a definition of information content provider for purposes of this section means any person or entity that is responsible in whole or in part for the creation or development of information provided on an interactive computer service. So there's a whole lot of potholes here, most of which haven't been adjudicated, most of which haven't been discussed or settled in various court systems, certainly not at the Supreme Court level. And it's where people look at this law and see legitimate grievances, right? Because we've got Twitter, we've got Facebook, we've got YouTube doing various things on their service that don't necessarily rise to the level of creating information, but might it rise to the level of developing information? Most particularly, and what we're going to be talking about as part of this video, does the use 
of fairly active algorithms, promoting certain things, pushing other things down, making sure that your eyeballs are seeing what the platform wants you to see, rise to the level of development of information. Remember, it doesn't have to be the whole of the information. Nobody has to accuse Twitter or Facebook or anyone else of creating it. It's just developing it. It's just giving it contours. And it doesn't have to be in whole. It can be in part. So certainly, if you've got a promoted tweet and they've added a little bit of quote-unquote context to it, that starts to look like that tweet is potentially going to be Twitter's responsibility. In fact, as I talked about in the earlier video, you could argue the complete opposite, right? You might have heard this somewhat apocryphal story. I've brought it up in Quote Investigator here. It says, you just chip away everything that doesn't look like David. And the question is, is that from Michelangelo, John Ruskin, et cetera, et cetera? Dear Quote Investigator, there's an unlikely tale about the brilliant Renaissance artist Michelangelo, not the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle. Don't get him confused. He was asked about the difficulties that he must have encountered in sculpting his masterpiece, David, but he replied with an unassuming and comical description of his creative process. It is easy. You just chip away the stone that doesn't look like David. Now, it's worthwhile to note it is apocryphal. Here we see, quote, investigator has located no substantive evidence that Michelangelo or any other great sculptor made this remark. Like so many of these kind of pithy quotes, you can check out this article, but it suggests that it was originally not so pithy. Somebody kind of made it a little bit more pithy, put it on a famous name, and now who knows where it originally came from. But the point in part for this conversation is it is possible to think of framing a sculpture or anything else, be it your internet content providing platform or otherwise, that you could get rid of everything you don't want and make it the message that you want to put out. Make that elephant, make that statue of David by getting rid of everything else. And so when people come and ask me about this, I say, well, it's possible, right? I don't know that Twitter or Facebook or YouTube are doing those kinds of things right now. But if you just imagine someone as maybe even a thought experiment built a platform solely to get rid of Democrat voices and were left only with Republican voices that perhaps you could accuse them of being the information content provider, that they'd provided the contours, they had developed this kind of Republican messaging in whole or in part, and that maybe this first section of CDA 230 shouldn't apply. Now, that isn't really happening here. I know there's a lot of folks on both sides of the political aisle that get mad at certain points here. We're going to talk about those, of course, but that isn't fully happening here. What is happening is that these services are building ways to promote certain kinds of thoughts, certain types of conversations, and they are now admitting it out in the open, which is what we're going to talk about with respect to this new CEO. Now, a little less important for this conversation is the second part of CDA 230, the part that's actually more controversial, which is that anyone that runs Twitter or Facebook or YouTube or wherever shall not have any liability for getting rid of things. Any action voluntarily taken in good faith to restrict access to things that that service finds objectionable is okay. They cannot be held liable for it. And you could argue that promotion through an algorithm or by human hands is actually just the inverse of restriction. And maybe that's just amounting to restricting access to other things by promoting them. You can get into all sorts of philosophical arguments here. The point is, is it isn't the easy question that really both sides of this particular issue would put in front of you. No, it's not obvious that a platform can't ever go too far to trip these lines. But also, it isn't as simple as saying, they're a publisher, they should be liable. It's not that easy. And there is another component to that as well, which we'll get to in just a second. But I also want to point out that CDA 230 is being attacked on all sides by the political sphere here. This isn't limited 
to President Trump's executive orders or to his Department of Justice asking for the big tech liability shield to be reduced. No, as a matter of fact, Joe Biden, our current president, is quoted in the New York Times as saying 230 should be revoked. It should be revoked because it is not merely an internet company. It is propagating falsehoods. He's talking about Facebook here. He should be submitted to civil liability and his company to civil liability, just like you would be here at the New York Times. So this isn't strictly a Republican Democrat issue. It's really more an internet social media versus the government and regulatory agencies issue, which is an important part of this story because opinion now, I tend to think that Section 230 is a relatively good idea. That if you look at the recitals of that particular piece of law, you'll see, hey, we don't want these platforms getting in trouble if some crazy person puts up all manner of lascivious or bad information on their service. We want these services to exist. And we are concerned that the courts are going to read it, that they are publishers of this content and they're going to get in trouble. And effectively, social media wouldn't exist. Now, my opinion there is that social media has some good things about it. If you're just completely against the entire prospect, maybe you're against the law for that simple reason, that if they are liable for everything anyone puts up, that's a good thing because they basically couldn't exist in the form that they take right now. But in general, I think if you're the CEO of Twitter or the new CEO of Twitter, you probably aren't on that side of the coin. You probably don't believe the world would be better off without your service which is why quotes like this one that I found in an article from 2020, November, just after the election, but in a speech that appears to have happened just before the election, is so interesting. This is new CEO Agarwal talking to, I believe it's an MIT technology conference, and some of this language is going to upset some of you. So I'm going to read through it all, and then we're going to talk about it. And then we're going to look at the rest of this article, because there's some good things he says to go with some somewhat concerning things. Here's his final answer in this interview. Our role is not to be bound by the First Amendment, but our role is to serve a healthy public conversation and our moves are reflective of things that we believe lead to a healthier public conversation. The kinds of things that we do about this is focus less on thinking about free speech, but thinking about how the times have changed. One of the changes today that we see is speech is easy on the internet. Most people can speak. Where our role is particularly emphasized is who can be heard. The scarce commodity today is attention. There's a lot of content out there, a lot of tweets out there. Not all of it gets attention. Some subset of it gets attention. And so increasingly, our role is moving towards how we recommend content. And that sort of is a struggle that we're working through in terms of how we make sure these recommendation systems that we're building, how we direct people's attention is leading to a healthy public conversation that is most participatory. Now, if you think Twitter is a benign force, then this can look like an acceptable paragraph to you, right? I tweeted it out because I thought it was interesting. And of course, I'm using Twitter to do this, to point out this was the answer given in an interview of this type. The scarce commodity today is attention. That's interesting. Our role is moving towards how we recommend content and how we direct people's attention. That starts to sound specifically on point with the questions I raised here. 
Do you become an information content provider when your mission as identified by you as the head of the company is to direct people in certain ways, to know things you want them to know? Is that development of information at least in part? And I think there's an argument that it is. So when you get answers like this, they become very interesting. The other things that probably jump out at you, if you've been in virtual legality before, if you're just a close reader of this kind of stuff, is that it all relates to what someone deems to be healthy conversation. And that someone in this case is the arbiter, is Twitter itself. Now, I do have folks that follow me that rightly point out, as I did in my earlier videos, that they aren't obligated to follow the First Amendment. And that I agree with. Here's Mr. Penguin at the Mr. Penguini that says they aren't obligated to adhere to the First Amendment. The point of debate, in my opinion, is that there is no equivalent alternative that is protected by the First Amendment, that Twitter can do what it wants. They're a private entity. And so we don't have an acknowledgement of a real digital public square. And that the conversation, I believe, and I'm putting words into the penguin's mouth here, is that that's the conversation that needs to be had. And I, I agreed that, hey, no, they're not obligated under the First Amendment. I hold to that. And yet we can still call out the issues with there being an arbiter for what is healthy. And if you go out there, and really go against what has been the common refrain for social media. We'll even see that referenced in this interview in just a second of we're going to try to be a public square. We're going to try to be a neutral arbiter here and say we need to focus less on thinking about free speech, but thinking instead about how times have changed and there's just too much speech. There are too many ideas. There's too many concepts. And so we at Twitter, our role is to decide who gets heard. And you start to get into a situation where Section 230 realistically does come into play. Now, I said I want to talk to you about the rest of this interview because I think it's interesting. I'm just going to be pulling out a few things here. But the new CEO is not just going out there saying inflammatory things. He says a number of good things. The problem, as always, with Twitter or Facebook or YouTube or anyone saying these kinds of things is who gets to control the definitional space. And we'll see that he can't properly answer that question, probably because there is no good answer to that question. Here's how the MIT Technology Review actually frames all of what he says here. He says, Agarwal discusses some of the measures the company has taken to fight misinformation while admitting Twitter is trying to thread a needle of quote unquote mitigating harm caused by false content without becoming an arbiter of truth. We're going to talk about whether he succeeds in threading that needle. I would argue that he doesn't, but I would also argue, as I said before, that it's impossible to do so. First, in a very good interview, I think, we start out with the main question that we saw at the end. You talk about metrics that would measure what a healthy public conversation is. I haven't seen very much about it. You know, elaborate on this. And then he kind of goes and spins for a little while. He says, hey, we thought we could see if we could define a few simple metrics of measurements to indicate the health of the public conversation, but... It's very, very challenging to boil down the nuances and intricacies of what we, Twitter, consider a healthy public conversation. And we need to work with academic researchers outside of Twitter. This won't be the only time that you hear reference to effectively authoritative sources. They refer to it here, I believe, as credible sources. But this is a fundamental disconnect that I personally have, and I think a lot of people have, with the way social media operates right now, that there's a level that you can get to where you have a Chiron in the corner of your cable news broadcast or a diploma on your wall for issue X that allows you to speak on everything 
and that they will heighten those voices regardless of their accuracy, regardless of whether or not they have been proven wrong often or even just on this issue in the recent past. And they will elevate random lawyer talking on CNN or Fox News or anywhere else above the hog laws of the world. And I'm only using myself as an example so that it be, can be framed properly, right? We're little here. We have 51,000 subscribers, yay, but we're not a giant news source. And yet you still see those news sources getting things regularly wrong, whether it's about self-defense trials, whether it's about various other things that are controversial in which I try generally not to say, not to talk about in this space because YouTube and its little algorithm likes to ding me for that kind of conversation. We'll see one reference here that I'm just going to plain skip. And yet they use this as the basis for determining what's information and what's misinformation, what needs to be elevated and what is not. The interviewer says, do you have a sense of what an example of such a metric would look like since you didn't answer my question? So when we set out to talk about this, says Agrawal, we hypothesized there were a few metrics around. Do people share a sense of reality? Do people have diverse perspectives and can be exposed to diverse perspectives? And we thought about, is the conversation civil? So we've got a couple of frameworks here, although it's very difficult to imagine how you would test them. Do people share a sense of reality? I think that's one of the fundamental issues of our time. And realistically, one of the fundamental issues we're having with media right now. I mentioned self-defense trials. I've talked about them fairly extensively over the past two weeks on other outlets. And there was a massive disconnect, even in just fact-based reporting, as to what was happening in these trials and what people were being told is happening. So much so that you had wildly divergent opinions on the verdicts of these cases because a lot of people, frankly, just didn't have the right information. And the people that did very often were the people that would not be deemed credible by Mr. Agrawal, not authoritative by YouTube. Now, as for diverse perspectives, I think reasonable minds can differ on this, but the question becomes, what is diversity in terms of perspectives to you if you are running Twitter? Chances are that's not politically diverse perspective. So what are you aimed at? And that's something worth kind of diving into. As for keeping the conversation civil, I think if you've been in virtual legality for a while now, you know that I like that as a concept. I try not to swear for the most part, go above PG-13 at the outside. And I think having a civil conversation is very useful, but also I don't think that arguments or conversations that are not using civil terminology necessarily mean that those conversations aren't worth having. So it becomes a very difficult thing for Twitter to grapple with. And I'm sympathetic to that, although I'm not as sympathetic to the goal of deciding what healthy conversation actually looks like. This is framed out again by Mr. Agarwal. Our approach is rooted in trying to avoid specific harm that misleading information can cause. And we'll see this throughout his answers here. He wants to say that Twitter is not the arbiter of truth. And if you followed me on Twitter or even in some of these videos in virtual reality, you know, that's our, my biggest concern when we start talking about misinformation should be punished is who gets to decide that, who watches the watchers. And he's trying very hard to suggest it's not Twitter, but in my opinion, failing rhetorically because there has to be where the buck stops on who determines what misinformation is, right? He says misleading information here. Where does that come from? It's a question he never answers. And he only frames it as saying, we try to aim at what harm could be caused by misinformation. Now, if you were doing this completely on your own and you had no political stance whatsoever, and you said, I don't know anything about the real world, about the reality of 
the, this disease or this election or elsewise, what you would do as a framework is you would go and say, okay, if I'm only using what information can cause harm as my method here, you would look at every single stance, every single statement and say, what if this were wrong? If this is wrong, does it cause harm? If it doesn't, fine. If it does, it gets a note, it gets removed, whatever else you're doing on Twitter and Facebook. And the framework that we instead see in social media is essentially light policy decisions and discussions by these companies that decide realistically what is right and what is wrong. Where that shared sense of reality is, because if you disagree with me, if you disagree with Twitter, you don't share my reality. And now we have the justification for saying, well, if you don't share my reality, then your conversation isn't healthy. And so while we get a lot of good words here, hey, we're not focused on truth, we're focused on harm, you don't see that in practice. Because if you did, you'd see a lot more coming down because if it's wrong, it could cause harm. And we've seen a whole host of wrong opinions by authoritative sources in the last 24 months. And I think we know what we're talking about here. I'm not going to give YouTube the opportunity to ping me for that, but we see it referenced here. We see it referenced by Twitter. They say, hey, we're focused on misinformation around COVID-19. We're focused on misinformation around civic integrity. And yes, I said both of those phrases, YouTube, please have someone actually watch this instead of just pinging me with an algorithm. So as an example, just to make clear, around civic integrity, we care about and we take action on content which might misinform people who say you should vote on November 5th when election day is November 3rd. And I like that example. It's a good rhetorical device because I think reasonable minds are all going to agree with that, right? If you've got something that is quantifiable, that is known, the sky is blue, election day is November 3rd, and someone goes out there with express purpose of confusing people about that date, I think for the most part, reasonable minds can say, okay, that's, that's an appropriate kind of use of your editorial powers. But he continues. He says, we do not try to determine what's true or false when someone takes a policy position. And virtually everything that everybody talks about is not going to be of the November 5th or November 3rd variety. It's going to be some form of policy position, at least if you're talking about controversial issues. If you're just sending tweets out of various pictures of Michigan beating the Ohio State Buckeyes this past weekend, not a lot of policy positions in that, just joy. But mostly, if you're going to get in trouble on Twitter or Facebook or YouTube or anywhere else, it's going to be something that is adjacent to policy. And that includes things like pandemics, things like how votes should be collected, how they should be counted, how they should be cast. Those are all policy positions. And yet, they say they don't determine what's true or false. I look at the actual situation on the ground and say, that's, that's not truthful. And when you're talking about wanting to be transparent, when you're talking about using algorithms to direct people, if you're not 100% truthful in answers like this, I start to get concerned. He continues, our approach for misinformation is also not one that's focused on taking content down as the only measure. Now, this is notable because if we remember in CDA 230, section two only gives you protection for taking things down, restricting access to, making them harder to get to. It doesn't give you protection for what Twitter has taken on for itself at this point. Taking things down is not the only measure, which is the regime we all have operated in for many years, but it's an increasingly nuanced approach with a range of interventions, which I would argue really aren't protected by CDA 230, where we think about whether or not certain content should be amplified, whether it should be amplified without context, or whether it's our responsibility. Now you have to ask, what is that duty there? What is that responsibility? Is that moral? Is that ethical? What is the context there? I would have asked these questions, but I think the interviewer does a good job to provide context so that people can see a bunch of information, but also have the ability and ease to discover all the conversation and context around it. This is Twitter 
making a value judgment about the truth value in a set of content that it is amplifying or not. And that can't be avoided. That's Twitter, whether it's through its algorithm or otherwise, deciding you should not see this without additional messaging that Twitter is effectively providing. How do you evaluate whether something is harmful without also trying to figure out whether it's true, asks the interviewer in a wonderful question. That's a great question, CEO Agarwal agrees. And I think in some cases, how do we do it? You rely on quote unquote, credible sources. So you don't always have to determine if something is true or false, but if there's a potential for harm, we choose not to flag something as true or false, but we choose to add a link to credible sources. Now you could argue this point. Twitter's language in their statements is effectively, this may be misleading, which sounds a lot like, hey, we think this is false. And here's a link to something we think is true. And that link is actually to credible sources who may or may not prove themselves wrong in a year or less. And they can essentially hide behind this concept of credible sources. And if you're familiar with this concept and you're in YouTube and you're here in virtual legality, you know that YouTube took the exact same stance, right? I pulled up the quote I put in my video from one of the old thumbnails, of course, where they said, we are falling back to really raising up videos from authoritative channels as important and at the same time, removing or reducing views of videos where that same level of authority hasn't been established. Now, I tend to like the way YouTube said this because it's so much more obviously false than just credible, right? And you can see that. I pulled up a Thought Co. article here with, of course, the fallacy of appeal to authority. It says, what's that fallacy? Person makes claim X, therefore X is true. A fundamental reason why the appeal to authority can be a fallacy is that a proposition can be well supported only by facts and logically valid inferences, but by using an authority instead, the argument is relying upon testimony, not facts. A testimony is not an argument, and it is not a fact, which is a little bit strong there. But the point of this is not that you should just assume all authoritative voices are wrong. It's that you shouldn't assume that someone with a title or authority is necessarily correct, and certainly not in an environment where facts and hypotheses and everything else are changing on a day-by-day, -day, if not hour-by-hour -hour basis. Or else you start to get situations where those authoritative voices start to read their own press clippings and think that they aren't just an authoritative voice, but they are authority itself. And no, I'm not going to read any of this tweet that's on your screen right now because, again, I'm not going to give YouTube the time of day on this stuff. But you can see how this happens. And you don't even have to disagree with the person on this particular tweet. You could think he's the God's gift to everything. You can still see how problematic it is for someone in a position of power with a voice or otherwise to think that argument with them is an attack on the notion of truth itself. That's a dangerous road. And yet when he's asked the question, how do you figure out whether something's true? He says, you rely on credible sources because that's all they have. So we say we're not going to determine truth or falsity, but we are going to put links that say something's misleading. And then we're going to link you to what we have determined as arbiters at minimum of credibility, if not truth, which is stretching it a little, but we could allow it potentially. They're going to link to those sources that they've determined are more likely to give you a right answer, whether or not they have in fact done so. Now here's a question and answer. I promise you, I wouldn't read about this word right here is one that got me a full-on warning from YouTube, despite not talking about the veracity of its claims. I, after I think four or five weeks, got that reversed. But again, we're not going to play with YouTube. And that in and of itself is sad, 
right? They're clearly chilling the discussion here because I have to make the choice that gets this message and this content out to you, out to as many people as possible. I have to make that choice to not talk about things that I think are otherwise important. The interviewer presses this point to her credit. Who gets to decide what is misinformation? How do you know if your credible sources are truthful, et cetera, et cetera? He says, well, I think that's the existential question of our times. Oh, okay, but the rest of us haven't claimed the mantle of deciding these things. So continue. Defining misinformation is really, really hard. Okay, also accurate. Perhaps you shouldn't be doing it. As we learn through time, our understanding of truth also evolves. Okay, also accurate. So what you called misinformation last month might be the God's honest truth this month. Maybe we should be a little bit more cautious with the trigger on these kinds of things. But then he goes back to his talking points. We attempt to not adjudicate truth we focus on potential for harm. And as I discussed, we can already see that that's not in fact the case, that this would look very different if you were just evaluating every statement neutrally and saying, what if this were wrong and what harm would that cause? Because if you do that for everybody, virtually every statement comes off the books, right? If this is wrong, this is going to cause X amount of harm. And they don't do that. They get in there and they say, this is misleading. When we say we lean on credible sources, and here's a little defensiveness, we also lean on the conversation on the platform that gets to talk about these credible sources and points out potential gaps. Hey, when we say we use credible sources to determine truth, we, we also consider people arguing with those sources. And here we're just straining credibility to the point of fracture, right? You don't go on Twitter or Facebook or anywhere else and see, oh, actually, you know, this commenter has a great point against CNN or against Fox or whatever on one of these sources, we should link that instead and say the source is misleading. Mm -mm. Doesn't really happen all too often. So we focus way less on what's true and what's false. We focus way more on potential for harm as a result of certain content being amplified on the platform without appropriate context. And they do that by amplifying other content and attaching it to the content that they don't like. Our approach is labeling content actually allows us to at the source flag content that might potentially harm people and also provide people additional context and additional conversation around it. In fact, that tagging mechanism is what led to Trump's executive order and the DOJ, et cetera. We don't quite see that from Biden. He just hates the entire concept because he says, hey, if these guys are doing something that the New York Times would get in trouble for, they should get in trouble for it as well. And to be honest, it's difficult to argue too much against that logic, especially when we see the platforms like Twitter somewhat abusing their position here, right? The interviewer says, I think the way that social media platforms traditionally presented themselves was, we're just a neutral space. People come and use us. We don't try to adjudicate. And what's Agrawal's answer to that? Oh, I'm not saying that we are a neutral party to this whole conversation. Okay. As I said, we are a critical part of the fabric of public conversation, which as I said earlier, gives people enough reason to be concerned with Twitter having a change in leadership in this fashion without loving Twitter. And you wouldn't want us to be adjudicating what's true or what is false in the world. Full agree. Let's stop. Let's stop right there. I don't want you adjudicating what's true or false in the world. And yet, here we are. We do, however, have the privilege of having everyone on the platform being able to change things, to give people more control. Again, don't see a lot of control going into my hands in the operations of Twitter and to steer the conversation in a way that it's sort of more receptive and allows more voices to be heard. Now, this is a really interesting concept. He says, we're removing stuff, we're tagging stuff, we're choosing not to amplify stuff, and that is designed to allow more voices to be heard. 
Again, you get this kind of feel of, okay, the words are right in certain aspects. We don't want them to be arbiters of truth. We don't want a truth and justice commission at Twitter. And yet the facts on the ground, what they still say they'll do, they'll steer the conversation is arbitering, arbitration, whatever you want to call it. They are deciding what it is that's going to happen on their platform. Now that isn't necessarily wrong. It's certainly not necessarily illegal. Right? Even if they lost the rights under Section 230, even if they lost all of this stuff, even if you look at an interview like this and say, my God, they want to direct people's attention. They want to tell folks how to have their conversation. They want to steer thought in the United States and around the globe. They are still protected by that same First Amendment. So if you lose 230 entirely, you do wind up in a position where you're asked, hey, is this the kind of thing that would get the New York Times in trouble? And none of this conversation is happening in a vacuum, right? If you just think this is Hogue talking out into the wilderness when he sees these kinds of things, you need to understand that there are pending bills right now that talk about getting rid of Section 230 protection for exactly the reason identified in that interview from the new CEO of one of the biggest social media companies on earth. And here you have it presented October 13th, 2021. What is the purpose of this bill? To amend Section 230 to limit the liability protection provided by such section when a provider of an interactive computer service knew or should have known that such provider was making a personalized recommendation of third-party information, that their algorithms were doing something, that a message was amplified. And no, I don't think this bill is necessarily going to pass, but the more disturbing thing, if you are Twitter, if you are the new CEO with this information out there and you want your platform to survive in the way that it is, is that I'm not sure that you need that law to say that you become an information content provider when you amplify those voices, when you have quote after quote after quote about steering the conversation, directing people's eyeballs, choosing what people see, what is healthy and what is not. Because the onus of Section 230 was not to provide platforms with the ability to control the conversation. It was to offer a forum for a true diversity of political discourse, unique opportunities for cultural development and myriad avenues for intellectual activities. So if you are Twitter, I would be very, very cautious with these kinds of statements. And this CEO might well not be. He was a CTO. He was in charge of the algorithms. He was in charge of purchasing the companies that steer your eyeballs, that direct your thoughts, direct your comments, and amplify what they want to be heard. And he is out there in black and white a year or so ago saying that is his purpose for the platform all while the government essentially waits to hit him as hard as they can. And what will be the result? I don't think the Twitters and Facebooks and YouTubes aren't going to be able to find a way around without the protection of 230. They'll use their First Amendment rights. They'll use their expensive lawyers to get around most of the stuff. Who will be hurt? It's the next company, the challenger to YouTube, the challenger to Twitter, to Facebook. And you'll get this lock-in of these media companies. Now, I don't think that's the intent. I think he is just being uncareful with what he is saying. But if you believe in the value of Section 230 at all, and I do, and I know a number of you might disagree with that, then this is exactly the kind of thing that gets you in trouble. Because at the end of the day, when you're saying things like this, how do you disagree with a Joe Biden that says, well, if you're amplifying it, if you're choosing what people see, why aren't you 
just as liable as the New York Times. Or if you're using more colloquial vernacular, even if it doesn't appear in the statute, why aren't they treated more like a publisher under common law than a platform under internet law? A lot to think about. This has been Virtual Legality for today. If you enjoy talking about the business and law of technology, video games, pop culture, and more, if you find value in the videos we put out there, please, please, please consider supporting the channel. Every single little bit helps. We've got other ways to support if you don't like Patreon listed in the description below. Otherwise, just subscribing, telling your friends, upvoting, downvoting, just mentioning that Michigan beat Ohio State. Everything helps virtual legality this particular week. If you watch this on YouTube, thank you so much for watching. Hopefully nothing bad happened to it with some of the phrases that I used in this video. If you caught it as a podcast, thank you so much for listening. And I will catch you on the very next episode of Virtual Legality. Virtual Legality is a YouTube video series with audio podcast versions presented as commentary and for education and entertainment purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship. If you have legal questions about the topics discussed, please consult your own legal counsel.